I'm Andrea, one of the hosts of the Voice of San Diego podcast. Every week, I get together with the other editors at Voice and explain the news that matters in San Diego. Elections, politics, law enforcement, big investigations, and some fun stuff. The great palm tree debate, ranked choice voting, bike lane mania. It's great journalism and a lot of fun. Every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's Voice of San Diego. Broadcasting from an undisclosed location in San Diego's eastern counties, this is So Say We All, and welcome back to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast. Here, be the place to hear your friends and neighbors sharing their true stories in the secular church that is our monthly storytelling showcase held in our beloved Whistle Stop Bar. Long may she live. In the aftermath of our passing heat wave, we can begin to smell just the faintest hint of fall in the air, and that has us all so percolating with anticipation. We wanted our next two episodes to reflect our excitement, so we're going with That's My Jam, a great show all about songs, hobbies, and obsessions that set the stage for life's bigger moments. And starting us off, our neighbor out here in East County, Nas Halewa, with his story, Shuffle. Here's Nas. For economic reasons, I live in East County while my job is in Mira Mesa. I work nine to five, which means that I keep regular driving hours, which means up to an hour from my house to my parking spot amongst unassuming industrial buildings that hide cubes of artistic, creative game makers for Sony PlayStation, where I work IT. To keep myself from attempting to cut across Miramar and getting blown up by marine aircraft, I choose to distract my senses with coffee and music and hope for the best. I do still enjoy picking a whole album and listening all the way through. I'm a child from the tail end of the unironic vinyl era and hit my music-loving stride when Walkmans were the thing any self-respecting teenager would be remiss to not have. But, <laughs> yep. But now, taking advantage of the future, I set the iPod to shuffle, and this time, the chick, 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 chick count off on a barely muted electric guitar introduces Matthew Sweet, Sick of Myself, from the album 100% Fun. Released March 14, 1995, the very same day I started dating my wife, and three years to the day before we'd be married. I associate the whole album with summer, and particularly Comic-Con. Sweet once used an anime for one of his videos when anime was still mostly the domain of the greasy bootleg importers that always had a table in the con vendors hall. I love 100% fun, and I think Matthew Sweet and I would have gotten along if we'd met his kids, only because he seems like such a fat geek too. <laughs> the chorus jangles, I'm sick of myself when I look at you. Something is beautiful and true In a world that's ugly and a lie It's hard to even want to try But I do try <laughs> Over and over To nail that one thing that will make me beautiful in this world I used to think it was writing Or making a comic Or maybe playing in my bands 
I guess the song reminds me of what I liked most about being young and male and innocent. Rock and roll, pop art, and longing for something better the next day before I started to settle on the idea that I may never fulfill every dream. The song has three false endings finally breaking down in a cacophony of symbols and distortion. I'm halfway to the freeway on-ramp at Maston 52 by then, and the parking lot of West Hills High School has spilled out into traffic. <laughs> I grip my teeth, I guzzle my coffee, and try to breathe deep. Who are these kids? And have any of them heard of carpooling? I'm seeing red, and it's not until the chorus that I even realize what I'm hearing. Tonight, we click no. Jeez. Why did I add this? I'm not young anymore, and I'm glad of it, frankly if only for the ability to make adult decisions. I use that decisiveness to skip ahead, but the next song doesn't do it for me. Neither does the next, or the next. When We Wish You a Merry Christmas, as covered by Twisted Sister comes up, I start to believe the little apple brain in the iPod must be mocking me. I try one more click of the forward button as I merge onto the 52. The opening strains of the next song start, and now I'm sure the iPod is mocking me, but I'm okay with it. The thing is, I have a few secret, guilty pleasures stored away digitally, and this is one of them. I saw these guys at Cox Arena, and it was one of the best rock shows I'd ever seen. There was so much energy and life in the room, and the lead singer had so much charisma and presence. When Scott Stapp <laughs> stood on that stage with his foot on the monitor and his arm stretched out like this and sang, can you take me higher? I was loving every cheesy minute of it. I bought Creed's album, Human Clay. <laughs> in Germany, at a tiny record store in Bad Kissingen. It was September 2001, and we'd landed in that country on the 11th. As the U.S. reeled from that day, I just wanted to enjoy my vacation. And unironic, pseudo-religious cock rock was just what Hair Doctor ordered. Even now, when the air is just right, and no one is in the car with me to tell me how bad my taste is, I can still listen to the whole album. There's a bonus track on the German release, <laughs> that I sampled years later and turned into a rap rock nerdcore jam about Godzilla. I called the track Original G. I think about putting that on, but decide against it. I let Creed finish as I creep over the crest of the hill on the 52, and as I shift up, the music shifts down.
Suddenly I can smell rain and patchouli. I'm 18 again, aimlessly attending Grossmont College, trying to court a beautiful Kurdish girl as the song Washer from Slint's Spiderland rattles to life. Good night, my love. Remember me as you fall asleep. Fill your pockets with the dust of the memories rising from the shoes on my feet. Her name was Pershing, and she was amazing and dangerous. My friends on the hill, that space between the library and the cafeteria, all saw her at the same time, but I talked to her first. I just went over and sat down and told her my name. I was terrified, but more scared not to. We became friends, but nothing more. Once, while we sat on the hill waiting for classes to start, I said, can I hold your hand? But she was smiling. I don't think we're there, she said. Any boldness I'd had was shattered with the rejection, so I refused to see what was right in front of me when we got up to go. She was on my right, holding her left hand up, looking at her rings, rolling her hand over in the air while we walked in silence. I let it dangle. She'd said no, right? We came to the place where we separated with the sidewalk and I said, I'll see you later then. <laughs> she smacked me on the arm, then pulled me down to kiss me on the cheek. You dummy, she said, before turning to walk off. There's this part in the song where the drums and guitars finally explode and I am submerged in sound and the memory of getting a call late at night from mutual friend Chad telling me Pershing had died in a drunk driving accident while visiting her family in Texas. She was the first of my peers to die, the first true tragedy of my life. I still wonder what might have been if I'd taken her hand that day. I have a love-hate relationship with local heroes, Switchfoot, who take over the speakers as if to jar me out of my melancholy. I love this song, Meant to Live, as the hopeful guitar-drenched hymn it is, but also because the boy, who calls it Meant to Meant to Live, loves jamming to it. Here, Dad, you play the blue guitar and I'll play the red guitar. Stand over there. <laughs> we air rock to this particular song about once a week. Switchfoot has always been that San Diego band my Christian friends love and my non-Christian friends appreciate. They seem like super nice, regular dudes, and they sure know how to write a pop song. So what is there to hate? Well, I call it the Switchfoot curse. See, I've been in three bands that have kicked me out, and all of those bands have played with Switchfoot. The most successful originals band I was in, called Rookie Card, played an in-store with Switchfoot right over here at the old M-Theory. I actually told John Foreman, the lead singer, about the curse. <laughs> we laughed. He seemed, he seemed genuinely apologetic, but I assured him it was all just coincidence, even though it had happened twice by then. <laughs> Turns out... I was fired from Rookie Card, too. Creative differences and all that. Standard stuff and nothing to do with Switchfoot. Probably. <laughs> I'm waiting patiently for the boy to kick me out of his air band. <laughs> It'll happen. 
Finally on the 805 now, merging into the slow trickle, like blood cells in the congested ventricles of a diabetic heart. As the sign for Nobel Drive in the Memorial Cemetery crawls into view, I get snuck up on by counting crows. <laughs> Long December, and there's reason to believe. Maybe this year will be better than the last. <laughs> I hope so. 2013 can go home anytime and take its ball with it. My dad is in that cemetery since February. My mom is still reeling, and my advice and encouragement seem powerless to help her. My wife's grandma passed a few weeks ago. My childhood friend's marriage is collapsing, with two kids about the same age as mine caught in the middle. I wonder if the boy is going to remember any of it. I pray, but maybe not often enough. I think about chance and how I don't believe in it. Just like my iPod, life has been loaded. The machine won't play a song that hasn't been put into it. While there is some variance in the order, I always know the possibilities, even if I sometimes have to be reminded of the exact details. Life, death, trivia, trauma, they're there for everyone, waiting to be played out in time. I pull into the parking spot. I could get out of the car right now, go into the office on a down note. But I choose to cheat on chance and change my mood. I take control back from the iPod, pick one more song, and turn the volume up while I sit and finish my coffee. <laughs> I smile every time I hear the opening riff to Thunderstruck. <laughs> Not the version as written by ACDC, actually, but the cover performed by Japanese band The Beat Crusaders. <laughs> they morphed it from a hard rocker to power pop anthem. I discovered this compilation CD in a Japanese subway station record store in Kyoto after a long, hot, exhausting day of poorly planned tourism, and it was the right thing at the right time. Thunder Trucks, tribute to ACDC. Written in English. <laughs> with self-deprecating correction included. The arrangement is familiar, but clearly different, like the country I was in. It was the perfect end to an imperfect day. I admit, I teared up a little because I'm a sap. It reminded me that even when things go wrong, there's something cool to be discovered around the corner if you keep your eyes and ears open. In movies, a tune like this would play over the credits with a long shot of the final scene. Most often in real life, we end in silence or we don't even realize a story is over until we get a chance to look back at it, and by then, it's too late to play a song. Wouldn't it be cool if we could choose our own end credits? Something to assure the people in our lives, even those just passing through, that everything really is going to be okay. Nasalewa, everybody. He's as much a delight off the stage as he is on, and hopefully, if you're lucky, you'll get to find that out for yourself one day soon. Next up, she's our program director, now in charge of all of our on-the-ground offerings, but back when this story debuted in June 2013, this was only her second story she'd written and performed for So Say We All stage. It's Jennifer Corley with Always Roaming with a Hungry Heart. I was five years old, and I was ready for some mature music. 
I was tired of the upbeat animation tunes, the Disney soundtracks, and the records that instructed me how to be a good person. It's okay to cry. Don't be a tattletale. Off the list was anything my parents listened to. I knew that much. The people on their records wore tassels and rhinestones, cowboy hats and turquoise, and I'd heard enough to know I didn't like it. I was jealous of my older sister's growing record collection. Her two-year lead had allowed for quite a blossoming music taste, but her choices were questionable. I would sneak into her room when she wasn't in there and I'd flip through her albums. Air Supply, Bee Gees, these guys all looked kinda creepy to me. There was too much hair. They looked like distant relatives playing dress up. The kind you wouldn't want to have to talk to at a family get together. So my parents took me to the Sam Goody at the mall to let me pick out a 45. The nearest mall was an hour away from our house up on a mountain, so this was a big trip. This was my rite of passage. Voyaging into the Isles of Sam Goody was my spirit walk. I'd return a woman. I couldn't rely on my parents or my sister for help. This was something I had to do alone. Taking in rack after rack, category after category, none of it meant anything to me. I thought this would be easy. Who were all these people holding on to instruments like they were married to them? Or men sticking out long tongues at me and reaching out at me like they wanted to pull me into a nightmare? And what was smooth jazz? And then suddenly, a man. This one cover called me over. The man stared at me with a hollow sadness that seemed to reflect the one I already carried around with me at five years old. The same yearning, fear, and anxiety that I couldn't put a name to, but had made my parents already put me into therapy when I was three. <laughs> The man had a mass of sloppy, confident, wavy hair and barely clasped hands, the kind that showed a decision made but a lack of conviction behind it. And so what I selected was Hungry Heart by Bruce Springsteen. At home I put on the record. It was an upbeat tune, but the lyrics were depressing. This guy sang about loneliness, abandonment, doomed love. It was overwhelming. This was mature music. Those feelings that were supposedly squelched in my toddler therapy sessions two years ago, they started bubbling. I laid back on my kitten print bedspread. staring up at the matching overhead canopy that had given me comfort. The little gray kittens' faces used to help me get to sleep as I would see different images in their shadows the same way people look at clouds. But the more I listened to this song, the more I felt this canopy closing in on me. Like a river that don't know where it's flowing. 
I took a wrong turn and I just kept going. Their shadowy faces bore down, distorted, and sucked the life out of me. It was a kitten-covered coffin lid sealing my fate. Everybody's got a hungry heart. I needed to get out of this town. I yearned for real love. I wanted a jean jacket. Suddenly, all the fights that happened at my K through eight school made sense. The small town frustration had a name, had a song, had an anthem. I wanted to break free. This was a lot for a kid to deal with, but I absorbed it. I became it. My hungry heart swelled and confused my young brain, making me depressed, making me skip school. I'd escape to the bathroom or to the edges of the playground, finding a little bit of comfort in the juice from the wild honeysuckle that grew along the fence and mumbling hungry heart to myself. Everybody's got a hungry heart. My Disney and morality spewing elves records became persona non grata. They collected dust. I would sing that song all the time and play that 45 in my room over and over. I couldn't even tell you what the B-side sounds like. I think my parents found it amusing whenever I sang about leaving my wife and kids in Baltimore. <laughs> but they didn't realize how deeply it was sinking in with me. I finally had a song that resonated. It comforted me, yet made me feel more lonely, too. Springsteen's wail and mine would drift from my room as I sat on the floor next to the record player and stared out the window longingly, wanting to leave our house and the small town we lived in. I played Hungry Heart the way other girls wrote in their diaries. I treasured the ritual. When the song ended, I would remove the record from the turntable lovingly, place it carefully back in its sleeve, then gently back among the other records. But one day, in a daydream haze, I put Hungry Heart back in its sleeve and sat it next to me on the floor while I flipped through my other records in growing angst. Cinderella, Lollywinks, Sesame Street Fever, Ah, all this baby stuff. <sighs> my dad walked into my room and his enormous shoe heel cracked down on a hungry heart. The sleeve ripped as I shrieked. My dad froze. I wildly beat at his leg and lifted his heavy foot. He was asking what he did and apologizing, but it was just noise to my now grown-up ears as I stared at what I held in my hand. My hungry broken heart. I cried for days over that. If by any chance my parents intentionally offed my Springsteen record, they sure did regret that choice because the noise coming from me now was tenfold. I exchanged singing for sobbing. They offered to replace it, but strangely, I said no. Springsteen said, ain't nobody like to be alone.
but as I moped, I was already forcing it upon myself at five years old. <laughs> it wouldn't be the same with a new record, a new sleeve, a new wrapping. It would be the same song, sure, but I'd just be playing my part. I just have to make do with remembering the song. And I always have. I've never bought another copy. Just like the boss did, I've gone out for rides and never come back. I got new jobs and new places that I tried to call home. Recently, as I drove off from the 14th city I've moved away from in life, I did what I always do. I sang Hungry Heart to myself as I took a last look in the rearview mirror. It keeps me going. Springsteen's song destroys me, yet it is my comfort. And of course, we all know that it's inside us and not outside where we need to find wholeness. But Jesus Christ, come on. There aren't any good songs about that. <laughs> Jennifer Corley. Jennifer D. Corley, everybody. Jen also produces and hosts a very fall-friendly podcast, So Say We All also puts out, filled with original horror, radio theater. It's called Listen With The Lights Off, and you should subscribe to that now and catch up before our new season drops next month. Third today, he's one of our most seen and heard community members. Say hello to Leon Deckelbaum performing former child star of Jewish retirement homes. You may not know this from looking at me, but I was a former child star of Jewish retirement homes. <laughs> a few of you may recognize me from the Revitz house, others from the Hebrew home, but I doubt it. Most of my audience was halfway towards the light on the other side when I stepped into the spotlight of this world. Ah, I still remember it like it was yesterday. The adoring crowds, they would sit there, not really cheering, but drooling on themselves, some bobbing along unrhythmically. And after the show, my fans would give me slobbery kisses. Harriet Fleshman, Moisha Dinglebaum. I remember them all, and I hated every minute of it. See, my mother was known throughout the Washington Jewish community as Aunt Sarah and her singing puppet, Shloimi. <laughs> she cut a record with him. She set up a hotline called Dialish Shloimi at the Chabad house. And she had big dreams for her four sons, too. Little setbacks like our complete disinterest in theater, singing, or dancing, or any natural talent whatsoever was not going to stand in her way. She entertained fantasies of her boys forming a musical group and touring. She used to play videos of a group of brothers from the 40s who would travel across the country singing hits like, we just travel along, singing our song, side by side. Now, I don't want you to think that my mother was one of those stage moms, but because she wasn't. But I think she saw what she wanted to see. And in our complete failure as performers, she saw diamonds. Diamonds that just needed to be polished before they could move away onto bigger stages. She also saw a greater purpose. See, she was the child of Holocaust survivors. And she would be sticking it to Hitler for good. 
We weren't just living and surviving, we were celebrating the Jewish spirit on stage. I would complain, Mom, I don't want to do this stupid, dumb, stupid, dumb, stupid show. And she would look me in the eye and say, do you know why we're doing this? Because Hitler tried to kill us and a few of us survived. And it was hard to argue with logic like that. As for my father, he knew what he was getting into when he married her. His job was to get out of the way. The oldest two sons were his, but by the time my younger brother and I rolled around, he had given up. He would be watching the football game, cheering on the teams with my older two brothers, while my younger brother and myself were dragged out of the house to prepare for fame. Oy, she had such dreams for us. Some of my first memories are performing a song she wrote so people could remember our last name. We were paraded around guests and asked to sing, Deckelbaum, D-E-K-E-L-B-A-U-M, that spells Deckelbaum. <laughs> Next, my younger brother and I started modeling school. I was a cute kid, and that seemed to trump the slight obstacle of me having no ability to sit still, focus, or follow any direction. My younger brother would be turning and twirling on the runway, and I'd be standing on my head, improvising a play between a pencil and a shoe, using high-pitched voices. <laughs> Next, there was tap dancing class, something I expressed no interest in, outside of destructively destroying the floor with my epileptic shoes. The apex of my childhood rise to stardom, however, was the Kishka Kids. It was a crack group of neighborhood prodigies. It included neighborhood girls like Dana Goldberg and Nicole Gottlieb, who loved to get on stage and belt out show tunes. My brothers and I were coerced in for a dollar each performance, which seemed like a lot of money at the time. My brother Andy escaped with the occasional wigged performance of Karma Chameleon. My brother Mikey would come out as library shortcake. I was the real star, though. I don't know why I was chosen. I think when I was a kid, I had curly hair, and perhaps my mother had intuition about my latent homosexuality. <laughs> my most popular act in our vaudeville show for the elderly was me coming out dressed as Curly Temple. I was adorable. On the good ship, lollipop, it's a sweet trip to the candy shop where bonbons play on the sunny beach of Peppermint Bay. And then I would pretend to be an airplane. <laughs> For my big finish though, I would tap dance. And I still didn't know how to tap dance. Years later, I was showing the video to a friend, and she said it looked like somebody had snatched my crutches away. <laughs> we would perform other stories, too. Tales of my mom's puppet, Shloimi, trying to build a hut out of branches for Sukkot. The quest to destroy unleavened bread in time for Passover. 
and the epic journey to Menorah Land to find the magic dreidel. I fought back bitterly and rebelled in my own ways. Some shows I refused to come out of the bathroom. I constantly turned my back to the audience and I spoke into the curtain and threw temper tantrums. And I upped my daily take to $5. Finally, as I got older, less adorable and more hairy, this show slowed. My high-pitched voice deepened slightly to my current high-pitched voice. <laughs> And she finally gave up. My mother became a solo act and expanded her puppet repertoire to include Nasty Norman and Shloimi's sister, Knadel. <laughs> I was relieved that I had finally worn her down. Still, part of me resented that I had been replaced by puppets. I think she privately held onto her dreams for years that I would come back to be a star. I would find some old Yiddish songbook and something would click. My inner Streisand would awaken. <laughs> and at that, all that latent hidden talent would finally bubble up. I think the moment it finally slipped away from her was my bar mitzvah. Everything was planned, the candle lighting, the songs, the terrible speech and her musical interludes. But I had my one tiny victory. In between the Hora and the Chava Nagila Chava, I insisted that the DJ play my favorite song 18 in life, you got it. 18 in life to go. Your crime is time. And it's 18 in life to go. Skid Rose, 18 in life. Blared from the DJ speakers. And all the middle-aged Jews nervously looked around the room. <laughs> turning their eyes to the heavens and pleading to Hashem to finally end Sebastian Bach's wail. And my mom, she finally realized that I had gone my own way. Years later, though, I did finally come back, but on my own terms. I had discovered a love of improv comedy after college and was getting ready to put on her first show at the Black Cat. I was terrified, but I invited my parents anyway. I was frantically doing shots before the show, trying to do anything I could to calm my nerves when my Jewish mother showed up. She offered me a lunch bag, explaining that there were two sandwiches inside. One had mayonnaise and one did it, and there were also two pickles. Yeah. Yeah. I took it, and I put it behind the stage. I wasn't going to give up my buzz. But when we finally went up, and I opened my mouth for the first time in front of a crowd in years, I finally understood what she was all about. Leon Deckelbaum. That was Leo Deckelbaum. Every story he does, does us a mitzvah. And rounding us out today, a former board member and all around great belly laugh provider, this is Eber Lambert doing his story, Top 40. My very first 45 record I bought was 123 Red Light, 1968. I was nine, and I grew sick of it after only a couple of days. Top 40. But on the B-side was a song called Sticky Sticky. It was like the weird Beatles stuff. I loved the Beatles when they got weird. Unusual instruments and rhythms, taped effects, complex progression. That always caught my ear before those simple pop songs. By 13, I was into psychedelic music way before I even discovered psychedelics. And I detested top 40 radio.
Through high school growing up in Vermont, I listened to an FM station out of Montreal featuring Prague rock, early electronic music, and Quebecois art rock. Brian Eno quickly became, and still is, a god. I got involved with my college radio station, snagged the primo 8 to 11 Sunday night spot my first summer, and kept it until I graduated. You're listening to The Candlelight Breeze on 90.1 WRUV-FM in Burlington. I served up a steady diet of the trippiest and most obscure music I could find in the vast and already mildewing record library. My roommates, they were deadheads, so I grew to love those long space jams and Jerry Garcia's noodling. For money, I worked at the Old Board Restaurant and Nightclub, the biggest disco in Burlington. Disco, the scourge of the 70s. R&B and funk gone horribly awry. Today, it's a novelty. Back then, many knew it for what it was, the beginning of the end of civilization. When I graduated as an electrical engineer, I punted on my fantasy of designing music synthesizers and first-generation digital audio. I needed a job, and the jobs were in computers and defense. I landed a job in Indianapolis, I got married, and my first son was born in 1982. MTV was new and fun to watch, but the music was still mostly cheesy top 40 radio. I located the hip part of town with the cool live venues and indie record store where I could mine for good music. I sucked up as much used vinyl as I could afford. My son's first toys were mostly musical, a Schroeder piano, xylophone, harmonica. I would put on music and we would jam along together. By now I was into jazz, the real stuff, not that Kenny G white bread shit. Also blues and reggae, the music of my college friends I had left behind and now missed. In 83, I took a new job and that moved us to San Diego. And a few months later, I hit a couple of Grateful Dead shows at Irvine Meadows and I was hooked. Through the 80s, five or six times a year, a weekend of Dead shows was within a day's drive. This became a cherished and brief and chemically enhanced escape <laughs> from my suburban life and defense contractor job. My second son was born in 1985, and by the end of the 80s, it was clear neither kid was the soccer and t-ball type. But as state-of-the-art suburban parents, you are required to find a weekend activity for your kids. My older son, Adam, loved music and was high energy. Neil was mellower, more of a Legos and Nintendo guy. We put them in a group piano class. Adam flamed out after about a month, no patience for it. Neil realized it was something that he could do better than his brother, so he still plays today, 20 years later. <laughs> we enrolled Adam in voice lessons in a children's theater group, musicals. I always hated musicals. But it was a great group of kids, and we became good friends with some of the other parents. And thankfully, they never did Oklahoma. <laughs> when I was a kid, watching the annual airing of Oklahoma on television was my mother's perverse form of child abuse. Adam's love for voice grew, but began veering off in the wrong direction. No matter how many cool vocalists I turned him on to, Bowie, Morrissey, Robert Plant, even Otis Redding, he would listen to En Vogue. Backstreet Boys, Destiny's Child. He was becoming our musical Alex P. Keaton. 
At 13, he begged me to take him to his first concert. When I was 13, I begged my brother to take me to see Led Zeppelin at the Forum. Adam wanted to go see Paula Abdul at the sports arena. Yeah, go ask your mother. In the late 90s, he got into retro 70s disco. One day I came home to Brick House playing at full volume. I turned into my father. I stomped up the stairs and turned off the stereo and yelled. I said, it's inhumane that I'm being forced to live through this fucking music twice in one lifetime. <laughs> but dad, dad, it's cool, he said. No, no, it's never been cool, never. People only liked it back then because the quaaludes were real, the cocaine was snorted, and everybody was having sex with anybody because nobody was worried that it had to be safe yet. He rolled his eyes and put on the headphones. I had become the uncool dad. After graduation, Adam enrolled in Fullerton's theater program. It only lasted a month when he realized that everything they were teaching him, he knew already. And worse, he was required to take remedial math. Math to him is like opera to me. It's complex and important work, but it's essentially a form of waterboarding. <laughs> he got a job as a lead singer on a cruise ship, or like we, as we used to call it, the lounge singer Navy. A year later, he found something more hip, a six-month tour of the musical Hair in Germany. He and the rest of the cast fully embracing the sex, drugs, and rock and roll theme of the show on and off stage. Back in L.A. in 05, he landed short-term theater gigs and had a part-time retail job. One store offered him a full-time management position. He called and asked if, he thought, if I thought he should take it. Remembering how I jettisoned my passion in exchange for a good job all those years ago, I couldn't help but tell him no. Keep chasing the dream, Ad. You're only 23. This turned out to be the right answer, since he had already turned down the job. Occasionally, he'd call me for supplemental cash for bare necessities like food, rent, or camping supplies for the annual Burning Man trip, which I came to understand was essentially a run of dead shows in the desert, but without the dead. Eventually, desperate for income, he hit his low point in a Lake Tahoe musical version of Debbie Does Dallas. No one in the family was allowed to come see his throwaway male lead in a cluster of tits and thongs. Finally, he secured a long-running solid gig back in L.A. in the chorus of a show, Wicked, and started a band with some friends on the side. August of 2008, he called and said he was going to try out for American Idol. Not a big TV watcher. I heard of it, but knew nothing about it. He said thousands were trying out. I said, oh, okay, I wished him luck. In October, he called to say that he was in the final top 40 and he was going to be on the show but had to quit his job at Wicked. Wait, 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 wait. You're going to quit your best paying job ever with benefits to go on a game show? Dad, Dad, it's the number one show on television. Is it? How much are they going to pay? 
Oh, I don't get paid until next summer and only if I make the top 10. How the fuck are you gonna live nine months without income? The call went rapidly downhill from there. In February, after I discovered what a hideous spectacle the first month of that show actually is, he made the top 12. And we all celebrated. Two weeks later, I missed my favorite performance of his live, a slithering Middle Eastern version of Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire that freaked middle America out. After that, I committed to go up to every Tuesday for the live show. We would talk on the phone every Friday and about what songs he was thinking about doing the next week. Of course, all of my suggestions were summarily discarded. The closest I got was to get him to shortlist Instant Karma for 70s week. He sang, play that funky music, white boy. Stinging irony is a cornerstone of any good father-son relationship. Over the next four months, I met an odd assortment of celebrities in the live audience. Paul Abdul. <laughs> Glenn Campbell slash Smokey Robinson. But unlikeliest of all, that excitable pop music fanboy, Sir Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> Hannibal fucking Lecter slapping me on the back and giving Adam a standing O for singing A Change Is Gonna Come. No amount of recreational drug use can, can prepare a person for something like this. Adam ended up coming in second, made the tour in his payday, and released his first album in 2010, scored a top hit on Top 40 Radio. He toured the US, Europe, Southeast Asia, and last July he sang with the remaining members of Queen for seven shows in Europe. I never really liked Queen. But I kept that to myself, and my son Neil and I flew over to London to see the shows, and they were great. Since I switched to collecting CDs way back in the late 80s, last September I unwrapped the first brand new vinyl record I've opened in 28 years, Adam's second album. And even with all that has happened, it was an amazing moment for me. He had caught the dream. It hit number one on Billboard for a week, so I tuned into the local Top 40 radio station <laughs> during my morning and evening commute, hoping to hear them play his new single. This only lasted a couple of days, however, because that Top 40 radio shit, it's still unlistenable. <laughs> Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Eber Lambert! And that is our show. You heard today from Nasalewa, Jennifer D. Corley, Leo Dickelbaum, and Eber Lambert. If you want to learn more about So Say We All, including how to get in touch, upcoming live shows you can be a part of, and more, hop over to our website, so sosayweallonline.com. 
Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts if you haven't already. And as always, we appreciate it if you leave us a rating and a review. It validates our hungry hearts. Hi, this is David Tuffy calling in from Brooklyn, New York. The Vamp Storytelling Podcast is produced by Justin Hudnall. Joe Hudnick is the production manager. Jennifer Corley is program director. And Brent Hanafy is social media manager. All the original music you heard was provided by Kurt Conan of AMFM Music. Support is made possible by the California Arts Council, the San Diego Commission for Arts and Culture, the Conrad Previs Foundation, and the supporting members of So Say We All. If you'd like to become one of those supporting members and keep So Say We All thriving, just hop on over to so sosayweallonline.com forward slash support and sign up at the level that makes sense for you. Thanks, David Tuffy. Now, I mentioned at the top of the show, we're excited about fall coming in. So we scheduled an extra special vamp on a Saturday for everybody who wants to go out without having to worry about getting up on a workday the following day. So go mark your calendars now for our upcoming fall fling vamp on Saturday, October 15th. Tickets are available now at our website with special member pricing available at the door if you're already a sustaining member. Thanks so much for listening. Take care of yourself out there. Stay cool, and let's talk again soon.